today's topic in terms of the political economy of competition law, while a bit of a mouthful, is for me, I, I think the, the zeitgeist. It, it is, I think, one of the key issues of 2021. And I felt this was a great subject to sort of start the year off because I think we're going to have so much coming back to it and so much as a reference point. So, Robin, I, I kind of, you know, when we talked about how this would go, I sort of said it's conversational, it's a group discussion. But I thought it'd be fair if you wanted to lead us off, uh, both in terms of, of, of what attracts you. What, what is it about competition law that, you know, given all the many things that you are interested in that you could do, why this area? And, and why the political economy of competition law? Because before you sort of said that to me, I, I admit I'd never thought about it, but it instantly became a self-evident, of course, yes, that makes total sense. So I'm, I'm curious to hear both, you know, how you got to competition law and why you think political economy is such an essential way of, of approaching the area. Yeah, so um, hi everyone again. It's great to see so many faces. Uh, we're not seeing a lot of those these days. <laughs> so good to meet everyone. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I got into the topic of competition and policy and law. Um, kind of, uh, yeah, like through my training in economics. So uh, I did my, you know, undergrad and master's in economics. I'm like a total econ nerd. And uh, in my master's, I, uh, you know, I, I developed a real interest in the economics around competition policy. And um, I took courses and uh, did training so that I could work at the Competition Bureau, which is Canada's competition uh, law enforcement agency. So that's like the FTC and the uh, DOJ in the US. So I, um, uh, yeah, I, I took courses. I, I got a job at the Competition Bureau and uh, it was kind of my, my dream job. I, I wanted to do this work because I thought, well, I mean, this is going to help me help people, right? And, you know, that's something that I really value in my work. Uh, but when I got there, I had a, kind of a crisis of faith, a crisis of economics faith, um, because I, I got there and realized like, oh man, like, you know, these people are just on a whole other wavelength than me. Like I just, I, I don't understand why we're not talking about people and the impact of business conduct on people. Because in my mind and, you know, in my schooling, like this is what I envisioned and imagined. And I began to realize that, you know, this really isn't the focus of our system in Canada. Our system of competition policy in Canada cares very little about consumers. Uh, instead, it's based off of this philosophy that competition policy is all about economic efficiency. And I'm hearing more and more of this in, um, especially in the United States, right? People are more tuned into this idea that like there's a philosophy or even an ideology of competition policy that says that competition law and policy antitrust is not about helping consumers. Rather, it's about creating an efficient economy. And so, um, you know, I've having worked at the Competition Bureau doing reviews of mergers, uh, you know, I began to understand how this philosophy impacted the way that we regulate businesses and the very nature of the laws we have. Uh, I'm seeing a lot more people critical of this perspective in the US and people are pushing back against it. But I don't think people really understand just how deep this thinking is in our system, in part because we don't really talk about our system all that much. Um, so I, uh, I actually like I had a moment, a uh, straw that broke the camel's back moment where uh, I was doing a review uh, around payday loan companies. So there was a transaction between payday loan companies that was reviewable. So we reviewed it. And, uh, you know, just seeing like, honestly, just like contempt. You know, like it, it to me, it looked like contempt for poor people. <laughs> uh, and, you know, maybe, you know, other people would debate that, but that's what I saw. And mm -hmm. it disgusted me. Mm -hmm. It just disgusted me. And I thought, like, I don't want to do this. Why would I want to perpetuate a system and a set of laws that, you know, have that baked into it? And so I quit. 
And like, honest to God, like I, I thought leaving that job, like I need to retrain. Like I had, you know, done five, six years of education to get to this point. And I realized like, like, am I even cut out for this? Can I even be an economist? Like I'm totally serious, like total crisis of faith and self-esteem. Right. Because being in an environment where, you know, you are you feel so different from people and like your perspectives are not really valued or like you just don't see that connection, like you start to feel a little crazy. And so, uh, yeah, I um, I left that and tried to, you know, find other ways to, you know, contribute and, you know, find an occupation that that, you know, aligned with me. But I came back to this topic of competition policy. I kept coming back to it, trying to understand my experience there and trying to understand why things are the way they are. And it drove me to like finally just, uh, you know, apply to do a PhD at Carleton in public policy. And that's my dissertation topic. So I, I'm unpacking this idea that competition policy is all about efficiency. And uh, to do that, I'm, I'm bringing like some data-driven methods but also, like Jesse was saying, bringing that political economy approach, right? Because at the end of the day, you can't talk about competition unless you talk about power and dominance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I mean, it's interesting, the way in which you describe that stuff is, is remarkably accessible. And, you know, I always found that the, the areas that are highly regulated, banking, telecom, the language makes it so difficult, so abstract, so kind of yeah. obfuscated. And competition law is kind of the same, that there is this veneer yeah. as if it's sort of of the public interest or benefiting people. But to your point, it's about market efficiencies, which actually just benefit dominant market players rather than, you know, the actual yeah. general participants. So. I, I'm sort of I'm a fascinated by the idea that competition law itself should be much more accessible, but that there's a power dynamic, that there's a political economy, especially in this era of monopoly, because it does feel and, and this is what I also really liked about your op ed. It does feel as if, you know, a huge opportunity was missed, a, a, a negligence from a regulatory authority perspective. You know, Vasp uh, put a, a question in the chat. What about when people conflate monopoly and oligopoly? Which I, I think is a, a equally a, a fascinating question. So I'm curious, Robin, for you to elaborate on that and, and elaborate on how you, from a public policy perspective, how would you like to see competition law retooled or, or reconfigured so that it actually could start addressing? Because I, I think the shock, the moral crisis you went through I think reflects popular opinion. I think most people mistakenly think that yeah. the competition bureau's job is to protect us when, you know, yeah. in fact, as you're saying, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. So, okay. Before I answer Vass's question, I want a bit of an elaboration. Can you, can you elaborate? What do you mean by conflate monopoly and oligopoly? Uh, okay, so to Jesse's point around how like the literature, the policy, the processes are almost intentionally inaccessible to the average person, right? Like oligopoly, yeah. I don't even know how to pronounce it properly. I know the word. I know the concept. <laughs> I, I honestly like not trying to be that's, that's silly right. Um, but sometimes with competition policy, uh, like there is a, it seems a body of literature that suggests, you know, competition policy is designed to deal with monopolies and a lot of the concentration in certain industries is, you know, three companies that may or may not be colluding or that kind of can conveniently collude. So thus we should, you know, either make certain amendments or work to recognize these oligopolies. Can, how do you say it? Yeah. that's it that's, that's it. it thank you yes um like when you read a word a lot but it's your first time saying it out loud there should be a <laughs> word for that um yeah you know is it is it is it fair to say say with telecoms is that a monopoly or like is that just a semantic thing that we maybe want people to get tripped up on or is that something that you know companies can sort of mm, pantomime competition 
when really there's not? And maybe that's more of my question. I'm not elaborating on it. I don't know. Is that helpful? You're nodding, which is no. so nice. I'm yeah. just mute myself. <laughs> no, no. Okay. I get it. Yeah. So yeah. So there's lots of jargon, right? So like monopoly, which means like complete domination, right? So like when there's only one place you can go to buy, you know, something like that, that retailer is a monopoly, right? Oligopoly, like Bass, you were saying is when you have uh, a small number of competitors, right? But what makes monopolies and oligopolies so, uh, yeah, competitors, what makes them so uh, dangerous to both, you know, people, but also the economy is that uh, they have market power. So that's like, that's really a key concept behind all competition policy. It's this idea that without competition, businesses have power and they can exert that power in order to, you know, reinforce their place within the market uh, or, you know, just get benefits from that, right? So uh, when you have a small number of grocers that can wink, wink, nudge, nudge each other to reduce hero pay for grocery store workers, they are exerting market power to their benefit. They can, they can do those things because they have market power. And in particular, they have that market power by colluding, by coming together and, and agreeing to something, right? And so you can see there by making that agreement amongst each other, they gain market power, which then enables them to reduce pay for workers. So that's like an example, right? Like telecom's another example where you have a small number of players and because there's a small number, it's easier for the marketing teams of these, you know, large organizations to, uh, you know, get really sophisticated in how they track prices and, uh, you know, they engage in complex pricing strategies against one another. But, you know, oftentimes these strategies evolve into tacit collusion. That's another jargon term. So it may not be um, explicit collusion, right? Where they, you know, sit down, make an agreement, sign it, and okay, this is what we're going to do. But rather it's this tacit understanding that, oh, you know, TELUS increased their prices for, you know, mobile services in this community. I as Bell can do the same, right? Or I know that there are certain uh, rhythms or, or systems of pricing that I can mirror. You see that in gas prices as well. And I don't know if this is the case anymore because there's been a lot of enforcement activity in that. But like research has shown like empirically that there are pricing, um, I guess the word is maybe like traditions or systems where uh, price gas prices cycle on a, a two week cycle and prices are highest on a Thursday and then they stay high throughout the weekend and then they continue to drop through the two weeks and then they go up on another Thursday. And so because there's like these industry standards or norms, you can have oligopolies creating and exerting market power. But, you know, even just the fact that there are fewer options, right? As a consumer, if you don't have a lot of places to go for the goods and services you need, you're likely going to be subject to market power. Well and that can also work in the other direction when it comes to workers. Anyway, and, go and, ahead, Jesse. Well, I was going to say one, I, I think myth I've always had when it comes to competition law is the barrier to entry. And and I think of this partly from a consumer perspective in that it's, it's not just a, a, my choice amongst people in the market. And this is where technology kind of comes in. The belief that a new entrant can enter the market at any time and disrupt the marketplace. Now, Brian in the chat asked the question of what is the government's attitude towards applying different standards and scrutiny depending on the size of a company? And that to me kind of ties to the notion of barriers to entry that is there within competition law consideration that the marketplace should be accessible, that there should be provisions so that not just that there's competition between existing entrants, but that new entrants at any time should not have obstacles in way of them being able to enter the market, hence small businesses and the way in which small businesses in theory should or should not be in the same marketplace as much larger entities. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple ways to unpack that. I think like the first thing 
to kind of highlight, like you said, there's a myth in Canada that our system is intended to benefit consumers. Uh, you know, and, and perhaps in some aspects of our system, that might be the case. But, you know, overall, I, I don't, I think that is a myth, right? Um, now to the question of applying different standards and scrutiny, depending on the size of a company, that's a super interesting question. So in Canada, you cannot block a merger just because it's a merger to monopoly. So what that means is, okay, say like Jesse and I are two businesses and we decide to, you know, merge and I, you know, Jesse's going to buy my business and my business is, you know, the transaction's going to be worth a hundred million dollars. So this means that the transaction uh, needs to be, um, there's a notifiability requirement. So I need to go to the competition bureau and fill out some forms that say I'm doing this. And then the competition bureau reviews that merger. So say Jesse and I have a, you know, we sell the same product and we're the only people that sell it. It's like this exotic widget that just doesn't exist anywhere else. So we're creating a merger to monopoly. The competition bureau can't go to the competition tribunal, which is the special court that hears these cases and say, hey, we need an injunction to block this transaction because it's creating a monopoly. And it's a semantic point, but it's an important point. Rather, the argument that the competition, um, the commissioner of competition needs to make is that this merger is going to reduce competition. And that is a different set of evidence, right? Market structure or market, um, market shares, they're a part of that. But in order to show that Jesse and I are going to you know, merge and then, you know, cause problems, according to the law, the competition commissioner needs to show that uh, we're going to increase prices, or we're going to undermine innovation. Um, those are kind of the two main yardsticks that things are evaluated by. And this is really important because it is much, much harder to show hypothetically that some transaction is going to lead to higher prices than it is to show a, hey, if I have 50% of the market and Jesse has 50% of the market, if we merge, it's 100% of the market, like it's just easy math, right? So this comes back to, you know, our point about the myth, right? The myth in our competition policy system comes from the way that the law is structured and the different legal tests that are applied to different types of business conduct that identifies whether they're illegal or not. So if you have these simple rule of thumb measures, right, like market share, it's much easier to block mergers or, uh, you know, stop businesses from acting in anti-competitive ways. But if you have to have, if you have to meet these complex legal standards that require all sorts of evidence and like tons of economic and, you know, business experts being hauled into court and, you know, affidavits all over the place, like it's very difficult to create a law that actually prevents anti-competitive behavior. So, well, you know, is there different standards of scrutiny depending on the size of a company? No. And that's a problem. Well, and, and it, it strikes me and, and I'll credit you with this in that I, I, again, had never thought of this until speaking with you the first time, but it strikes me that part of the obfuscation or part of the, the, uh, uh, lack of scrutiny, the opaqueness of competition law is the way in which morality is present and yet invisible. Because to say that, you know, the goal is efficient markets, well, that's a moral statement. That's saying that you believe in markets as the ultimate governor of human activity versus, you know, I think part of your reaction, part of our reaction is, I have a different morality, right? I, I have, I want to see yeah. fairness. I want to see protection. I, I want to see, you know, greater transparency, for example. So to what extent does there need to be either an explicit morality, which I sort of hear in the phrase political economy, or to what extent does the existing morality need to be teased out so it can be critiqued in that if competition law focuses on market efficiency, and we're increasingly finding markets, especially in the wake of a pandemic, being grossly inefficient, 
then there needs to be a rethinking of either the broader philosophy or the frame in which competition law takes place. Thoughts? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think like both your comments are right. There needs to be an explicit morality and philosophy behind competition policy. And the implicit morality of our current system needs to be teased out. And I think that's one of the key things that's missing in current conversation about competition policy in Canada. I mean, besides the fact that we don't really talk about it, right? And, you know, in kind of thinking about this conversation and like kind of brainstorming a bit, like I think like at its most fundamental level, when we think about competition policy, we need to ask ourselves, what role does competition have as like a human behavior, right? Like something that people do, right? What role does that behavior have in our economy and society, right? Because I think it's wrong to say, and I think many people that do competition law would argue that competition is inherently good. We want a competitive economy. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I think that there are places in economy and society where you don't want competition, right? Like, you know, people talk about um, the like marketization of social spheres, right? Like the market for, you know, spouses, right? Like, do we really want to be like finding life partners through a competitive process? Like, you know, fight to the death, like, or, you know, <laughs> hey, whoever wins the sprinting contest is going to marry me. No, like, we don't do that, right? But that, that um, mechanism can actually be kind of useful for other contexts, right? Like innovation, right? Uh, like, I see you doing something, I'm going to one up you. Oh, you're doing that, I'm going to one up you. Or, you know, keeping healthy prices, right? Oh, you are lowering your prices and capturing some of my consumers, well, I'm going to do the same to you. And so that rivalry can be healthy, right? But competition policy needs to ask itself, how much of that rivalry do we want? And where do we want it? And so I think that's the political economy side of things. And in Canada, we've made a decision to undermine that rivalry in order to have economies of scale. So what I mean by that is, in Canada, especially when it comes to mergers, and that's asked the question, merger versus acquisition, same thing. So merger and acquisition or together, M&A. Um, so we allow mergers that are going to undermine competition if those businesses can show that the transaction is going to cut costs, right? And the idea being that you can cut some of these overhead costs and then reduce the per unit cost of the widget you're making or you know whatever else you're producing. So if you if yeah, if Jesse, you and I merge and we have a you know a staff of 200 people and I fire 50 people because I have 50 admin people and I'm just going to keep your admin people, that's acceptable under Canadian law. We have a provision in our legislation that says if Jesse and I merge that merger is very likely going to hurt consumers, so increase prices, but Robin fires 50 people, then that's a-okay. Mm -hmm. And so we've made a choice, a political choice, to prioritize those types of efficiencies over the welfare of consumers. So like, I think in order to like get that straight, we need to start talking about the fundamentals right? Like what role does competition have in our economy? And I think that flexibility also like it gives us a, you know, more, more tools to work with or, you know, more paints in the paint palette or whatever, because, you know, it lets us say, well, you know, maybe, maybe the telecoms shouldn't have competition. Maybe they should be nationalized. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like does competition work? Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe we should just buy them. I mean, I don't know if I believe that or not, but I think but, it's a legitimate argument. Well, and, and I think it's a legitimate debate because I think part of the paradox is this has to come from the political level, right? This has to come from the elected officials and they respond to public opinion and public debate. So there first has to be a, a quasi spontaneous public discourse about competition law. <laughs> 
which ironically I do think is happening, right? On a small scale, as a result of what's happened in the United States, as a result of the dominance of the digital giants in our lives. So I I feel, you know, the relevance of this conversation is that it is very au courant, but I still feel that that we are an elite who desire for this conversation to scale up, but the civil society infrastructure on this particular issue may not be there because this this was another subject i wanted to talk about in terms of you know whether it's uh, uh other areas of social justice there is some civil society infrastructure there are researchers and organizations and even in the realm of economy there's the ccpa and and this is usually the time of year where you know they have one of their big hits in terms of ceo pay where they do their campaign about how most Canadian CEOs have earned more now in the first few days of the year than most workers will all year. But the competition law file seems not like, there doesn't seem like there's a lot of people working it. Now, I, I'm curious, and, and this is where I, Jeanette, I don't know if you had your hand up earlier or if you were just resting your face. No, I did. So I'm curious to bring you in. I'm curious anyone else who wants to jump in. And, and I'm throwing this open both to for you guys to jump in the conversation as you see fit, but with me raising the meta question of how is this conversation uh, spread? How is the participation in the policy around competition, around governance of markets? Because I think it's ultimately the governance of the digital giants and the governance of our uh, uh, economic infrastructure on a digital level. I think competition laws where a lot of that's going to play out. So how do we make this a more uh, participatory and inclusive policy area? I raise that as a meta, but Jeanette, by all means, take this in a completely different direction. I really just wanted to, you know, I, my experience of thinking about these issues has nothing to do with markets or companies or businesses. It's got to do with the professions, right? But specifically healthcare professions. Um, and monopoly means something different in that context. Uh, that doesn't mean it's necessarily a positive thing, but I think there's a different point of view about um, what the value of that is. And there are different arguments to be made. Um, and it's, I just, you know, when Robin was talking about this, this larger question of, you know, is competition uh, the, the value that we want governing every aspect of our lives? I thought, okay, well, this is a, an arena where you know, we're looking at a lot of the same kinds of uh, issues, but they have been framed differently. I would argue that the professions actually have been remarkably successful at selling the idea that monopoly is good, that monopoly is what protects us from quack doctors. Um, and that, uh, you know, some of the, 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 that even collusion is a good thing because again, it's somehow presented as being in the public interest. That was really all I wanted to add. But a fascinating point in terms of, uh, uh, especially the issue of credibility amidst the pandemic, whether those arguments in favor of their monopoly undermine their ability to mobilize public health and mobilize public response, because they've relied upon their institutional authority rather than developing a more uh, a relational authority, a more cognitive authority. Well, and that's where, you know, so much energy is wasted uh, by these professions in, in the scope of practice arguments, the jurisdictional battles over, you know, where does the line end for like, let's say ophthalmology versus optometrists versus, you know, opticians who are totally beyond the pale because they don't have a degree. Uh, you see that play out you know, all over healthcare, the nurse practitioners versus the regular RNs, you know, um, anyway. I mean, but. David, this is kind of the part of the trenches you've been in as a PhD in the field of medicine, trying to get MDs and other disciplines to work together and collaborate more. Is this a point in which you'd like to jump into the conversation? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> All right, Mike. I'm going down another another avenue of query that maybe I would save for the towards the end of our conversation. Okay, fair enough, Mike. You've been sort of uh, jumping in the chat when it comes to the telecom stuff, because of course you're uh, very much in favor of. That's yeah, the only thing I know about. So right, yeah. yeah. So and I've taken a 
you know, I take I take positions from here, you know, and right now, I mean, I would say that when you're looking for people that understand this monopoly thing, uh, you people uh, Canadians, because you know we're all racist, uh, are looking in the wrong place. Indigenous people, <laughs> no, under have have been dealing with mon like especially the north. I I was lucky enough to move up there when I when I right when I got out of school and found out that all it was is for profit monopolies that are subsidized by the government. Right, so that's the most fucked up thing you could ever have in society. So it's just been it's built up over the years because the people that wrote the rules, and so you have these three horrible places. This is on YouTube: a Calumet, Yellowknife, and Whitehorse that run, you know, the government, you know, and funnel money like the the money sort of goes down the pipeline. But it all, for some reason, over the years, it's gotten to this place where some business guy in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s, maybe even five years ago, set up a business and then his rights to make money forever trumped everybody that lived there. And you get this at a local level right up to, um, you know, our, I'm not that critical of Northwest Tell, uh, who's the monopoly operator over there because honestly, people in the Northwest Territories and Yukon have a really good internet. Um, in Nunavut, it's horrible because everything's on satellite. And uh, but uh, so it's complicated, and that's why I always sort of show both sides. But but as a fundamental thing, when you're talking about the government, they're the ones that's the problem in the north, right? So as far as competition, who needs competition? Is the the territorial governments need competition from the Inuit and Dene governments, and they're not allowed to because uh, you know and and the, and and the feds and the provinces are protecting these monop subsidized monopolies and subsidized monopolies are a horrible thing. So um, if they're not, you know, highly, highly regulated. So, well, that's, as so I do know about a specific situation that's like, but I, I think that indigenous people in the country know this problem clearly, at least in the North, we know it. Well, and, and, and you, not, I think we, you indirectly, sort of evoked the you know what about competition between governments and among governments and non-government entities because on the one hand i think indigenous nations across the country are increasingly in a competitive relationship with the federal government and you're just outlining the economic aspects but then of course we have the Recently, threat i mean it used to be like torture right right <laughs> now but they I mean... actually get just treated horribly but but so. you're also evoking you know and, and we don't i believe have any representation present the the blockchain libertarian nuts who sort of see their own kind of competition with traditional government <laughs> services as as part of what they you know believe in right or and elon musk if elon we're just going to keep it in telecom i was going to say musk is that is is it's the telecom version of a blockchain nut right right He's losing massive amounts of money able to come in over the top somehow get this telecom license and operate. If, if Bell Canada was losing uh, or offering a service at one fifth of what it costs to provide, people would go crazy and say, oh, you guys are horrible. And they can't do that. But yeah. somehow uh, Elon Musk, our hero, uh, is able to do whatever the hell he wants, uh, you know, so, and, and get cheerleaded for it by all these blockchain idiots. I, I, I set that up only to establish the idea that competition right. is 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 as a metaphor running rampant, even though I think Robin's original provocation that maybe we should rethink when and where competition is appropriate. So allow me to throw to you, Stro, because in the chat, you were sort of suggesting you wanted to make the argument as to the merits of competition or the inherent pervasiveness of competition as a kind of state of nature. Yes, I, I just think it's natural. I think that, you know, we're in a competition to change the system and it's it's David versus Goliath, uh, but it's still a competition Like, because nothing is absolute. And at some point, the yin and the yang of it has to come around. Like we have to change the system because enough there's enough problems being created by, by lack of competition in a way because it's the powers that be have gone too big and too pervasive in their lives. Right. So we're kind of we're that little we're the little ball in the, you know, in the bigger scheme of things in competition with this big, big entity. But I think everything when you break it down becomes this this duality of versus something. 
right? So I think there's always a, a, an innate competition, whether we're looking for partners or we're dealing with economics or politics or anything else is what I'm, and I'm not saying it's right. I think, you know, we have to think about um, how are we going to, if we're going to survive as a species, what are we really competing against and how we go about this competition? And, and I totally agree. It's, we, should, we should never put property rights ahead of human rights, but it seems like the competition has come down to, okay, we're in a fight for our lives versus, uh, you know, people owning things as opposed to our own nature. And I, and I think that's the, you know, the big challenge is how do we, how do we make the competition benevolent for everybody? Because it doesn't seem to be working that way. I mean, I, I saw facial reactions from Sharita, <laughs> Jeanette, and Vass that all seemed like you wanted to respond. So any of you, by all means, jump in. Vass, you want to go first? I think my face was reacting to, uh, I, I don't know, I was just thinking like, you know, are there ways to like start a company online without using the infrastructure of Shopify? right? Because Shopify is a company that I think is well on its way to becoming monopolistic, which I think would be incredible for Canada's economy. And we're all kind of watching, uh, watching it happen in real time. And it's something, its growth is something we could learn from these, you know, anti-competitive, belated anti-competitive tactics in the US. Um, so that, that was my only kind of thing, Greg. I was like, okay, thinking about like, the not Amazon kind of mini movement. Um, I'm forgetting the woman's name who started it, who's Toronto based, you know, people, you know, consumers thinking about alternatives and what consumer power we have when really the most powerful lever that we have as consumers is probably um, mobilizing around antitrust action and not um, feeling badly or shaming ourselves too if we engage in you know, engage in and with the companies that are that are causing the, for lack of a better phrase, because I think it's so imprecise, harms. But Jeanette, I want to hear more from from you, and I, I love your toque, so it's your turn. <laughs> it's cold here. <laughs> um, I, you know, my reaction, and th this is in no way personal, Greg. It's just that my hackles go up the minute I hear appeals to some sort of state of nature and the naturalization of competition as an inescapable fact of human society. I mean, that's, yeah, that, that's a myth that's really convenient uh, for people who are invested in a sort of possessive individualism where, you know, I, I wrestled away from you, your stuff, so it's, it's mine now. Or I mixed my labor with this land, so it's mine now. I won the competition. But, uh, I, you know, I don't think I'm alone. There's, you know, quite a lot of major thinkers who would argue cooperation and collaboration is as endemic and is as uh, much uh, a, a natural, let's say, um, facet of human society, maybe even more so, that uh, if anything is the hallmark of human society, it's, it's cooperation. Uh, and, but, the, you know, the... It, what's the popular myth? It's it's absolutely the the idea that um, every man for himself. It's always every man for himself too. <laughs> yeah, I you know I agree. I I think that cooperation is is really. I think what I was trying to imply is that I agree that cooperation is why we have survived as a species. I think the problem is that cooperation is in competition with that old way of thinking or that natural the way that we've seen nature um mm. get us to this point right like so cooperation that are this what we're talking about this being you know that's why we have laws right that's why we we have things in society and if things i i feel like we've almost gone backwards because it uh, capitalism have made things too competitive and we need to step back from that and, and actually go after the cooperative, the, the more common good model for for how we run business and how we run politics. And I think, or whatever it is, right? And I, and I think um, we, we can't forget that what we're up against is competitive. Like it's still a competition. How are we gonna win the competition to make cooperation and collaboration uh, the way we move forward, because I don't think we're going to be able to survive as a species 
um, and save ourselves and this planet if we don't. Um, so, you know, we kind of have to understand our, our competitor in a way, right? Because you're right. That's exactly the problem with the world. Sure. Well, I have going... a... Sorry, go ahead, Robin. I was going to say, I have a, a question or follow up to Greg's point there. So, and this is something I've been thinking about. I don't have an answer for it. But like, if I understand right, your argument or, or what you're saying is that you know, we, we ought to move to a way of doing things as a society that's more cooperative, right? So what makes the grocery store collusions to suppress wages bad? Like that's, that's cooperation, that's collaboration. I think it's, I think it's bad because um, it's again, not taking the human aspect of it and putting it ahead of the economic gain for that, for the, even though they're big, they're, the philosophy behind it is, is bad because it's not for the greater good. Um, and, and it's not cooperative because you're not cooperating with the people you're directly dealing with. So, um, you know, again, I don't think the competition I, 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 is that small. I think it's actually a bigger competition of how do we change our system of economics and uh, uh, political structure that is driven by property, by by uh, capitalism, right? Owning capital and, and making that dollar more important than what the effect on those people is going to be. So uh, how do we compete against them? Well, uh, and, I don't know. and I think Greg, a.k.a. Stroh, deserves credit in that he's literally attempting the meta view which is, you know, even when trying to go past competition, there's a certain competition that one has right. to deal with those who demand competition, right? right. Who, who are not going to necessarily sit and negotiate with you on the terms that you desire, which I think is the point of political economy, that you acknowledge power and you acknowledge money and the way in which power and money relate to each other and change the dynamic in which the rules or the laws take place. Now, Sharita, you had your virtual hand up, I and I, I suspect you wanted to sort of take it in that political economy I direction. Did. I, I did. Um, and what keeps running around in my head is, yes, monopoly is power. Um, and what that power can often mean is exclusive access. Now, access to what? You can talk about it on all kinds of different levels. We were talking about it in terms of, um, you know, regulated health professionals, um, et cetera. But what it also means to the general public is access to information and access to knowledge. Now, it really suits people who are in positions of power to really put the clamps on um, which people have access to what they know, right, to their power. So really, when you're looking at monopoly, you have to break it down more in terms of the political economy. And I know I'm coming at it from a very high level instead of looking at it in terms of competition or collaboration, etc. But I really think we have to unpack it at the level of power and access to power and access to knowledge and access to money. Um, so basically that's what I wanted to say because it works on all kinds of levels. Well, and you know, I mean, this goes to something Vass was saying about worker owned co-ops in the chat that I've been thinking a lot about the government money that's being spent in response to the pandemic. And a lot of that money is going to large companies to remain large companies. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be difficult to allocate a tiny amount of that towards startups, towards, you know, co-ops, towards uh, sole proprietorships, right? And, and to really make that, which goes back to my earlier point of the myth that I used to subscribe to, that competition law was about access to the marketplace and lowering barrier to entry. 
Because even though I do have my own kind of critical tendencies around market economics, I have this romanticism of entrepreneurship that it's great when someone feels a sense of agency and feels as if they can participate in the economy in a meaningful way, but it has to be accessible. It has to be something that they're able to access. And that may be the myth of digital tools, that digital tools make us think that you can start a business and go online and make money. But to Vass's point, maybe you're just making money for Shopify. Right. And maybe you're just stuck in the multi-level marketing that is Shopify or Amazon or Twitch or any of these platforms. And maybe that's why Shopify should be nationalized. Maybe that's why some of these platforms should be nationalized, because if you're ultimately working for them, well, maybe they should be working for us as society. So as the platform grows, society grows and tax revenue grows and therefore education and healthcare grows. And and that's where I think when we go back to Robin's earlier provocation of maybe we should be rethinking competition and the role that it plays in our lives, which I, I think we've been doing in this discussion in terms of cooperation and monopoly and, and regulation, I, I think what we're tapping into is the richness of this area and the extent to which it ought to be a much more active public conversation. Jeanette, you're itching to get in? No, I was actually just, I was responding to the chat because Vass had put up this thing about, uh, you know, is the pandemic offering a, you know, a boost to monopolies, yes or no? And I was thinking, well, you know, going back to professional monopolies, those guys, their bread and butter is the arguments for stability and security and safety, right? That's the justification for policing those jurisdictions. And pandemic, you know, is going to make those arguments that much more powerful. So I, I would vote, yeah, you know, yes, absolutely. Now I don't have to type that anymore. <laughs> See, I, I, I keep thinking about, uh, you know, competition can be really great, like in sport, right? But there's a set of rules and there's uh, generally a benefit to, to being in the competition, like the Olympic spirit, right? Um, and I think if we scale that up, we haven't got an Olympic spirit when it comes to the way the world runs their politics and their economics. Um, it seems to be a, a blood sport a lot more than any other sport. Um, and, and I think that's what we need to change is the philosophy behind competition. I think there needs to be a social safety net, right? And that's gone away because monopolies and co competitors just want to blow everybody. Just they, they want to fight to the death and not let the little guy coexist and play in their beer league. They want, they treat it all as the, you know, as the, the, the professional sport and it shouldn't be that way and i think that's where we need that's that's what we need we need to change about competition is the philosophy behind it um when it comes to things that matter to you know people to to survive and would we have be having this conversation um if there was no injustice in the world i don't know but right? I, I but maybe this is the point about rules like we're having a discussion about competition law because we kind of agree there ought to be rules Right? right. There there ought to be a way in which people can be in the marketplace. And and maybe I'm crazy in the sense that like if I had a small business that made me enough money that allowed me to like feed myself, house myself and like, you know, live the lifestyle that I'm currently living right now, which, you know, again, is is not in any way affluent or opulent. I would not need more. Like this idea that businesses have to grow and grow and win and win. There, there's there's a toxicity to that culture that could be recorded in rules. Like you could have zero taxes if your business has 100,000 revenue, but over 100,000 revenue, 50% taxes or, you know, something crazy that just, and, and maybe that's not the, the threshold, but it's this idea that we could be using rules to foster a different culture that harnessed the power of competition, but still recognized how cooperation and the greater good is what makes human society possible. Now, 
And I sort of said that in response, Vast, to your point about what's the second place or what's the silver medal for competition. And I was like, well, right. Why Why don't we have a participant medal in business? You, you survived the <laughs> pandemic. You didn't go bankrupt. Congratulations. Rather than the always, you must conquer and you must win it all. I mean, again, I, th I think that there's much more room for the type of competition that, that still allows for a much more human, a much more reasonable approach to the economy. Other thoughts, other directions that we want to take the conversation. Mike, by all means, jump in. I just want to say something just to make sure I understand it, because I think what you just sort of said was is Robin's main point is that nobody's really looking at the rules and the rules are what's mad like, right? And so it's like we're always sort of looking at who the outcomes of the system and they, you know they're winning there and that's no good and this is stupid but no one's like looking at the rules and say like what are they and how does it actually end up because and i think that's where um you know there's a little more the like nunavut particularly is a weird place because there's this active uh political participation in at the municipalities yeah in the Inuit group or Dene and NWT uh, that the, as well as the territorial government and the federal government. And, and it's just a thousand people in the middle of nowhere trying to like keep costs down and everything's the opposite. The, 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 everyone's trying to grow their profits on those people. Like it's, and, and, and this is just sort of built up over these weird rules. So, um, you know, it's just, I think it's all about the rules and I think you, to me, you made me, and that's why I just want to summar, summarize what, just so I, because I'm, I'm, you know, I didn't really spend much time at school, so I always just take the thing I know, and then, and then, but I think that, that, that that's it, is that what, what Robin's thesis is, is that what, why, who isn't, look, why aren't people, like, looking at the rules and saying, like, asking all these questions about it, you know, yeah, that, that's I, how I sort of take it. Mike, you know, I'm just going to reply to that, because I, I have this thought that just came to my mind, is that, it, the rules were there, but, you know, somebody won the competition and they thought they could change the rules. And so yeah. the rules have been changed by the by the people that win because they wanted to continue to win. Right. So it's like it doesn't make sense anymore. There are no rules uh, because the, the people that have won have changed the rules. Right. The, the if it used to be the U.N., for example. Well, that was run by the U.S. because they had the bigger, the biggest uh, in guns or the, the the biggest posse or whatever, and they took over and changed the rules. And it's now we're all so, up against it. Fast, you were sort of shaking your head there. Oh, I'm just being like a good participant. No, I mean, look, maybe we don't have time for it, but I'd love to maybe also brainstorm like how can we have more monopoly. Because I think thought experiments like that help us understand where the levers are and where the opportunities are uh, that need to be kind of remedied as we're talking about like the rules need to change or they've been, you know, they're acting in, in the interests of the wrong actors or they're just kind of ignoring things like Sarah, to your points, you're right. We have to be learning from these major cases. Um, and again, we probably don't have time now, maybe a future meta views or maybe something to leave you guys with or we have in the chat, but uh, I'm I'm personally interested in in trying to think that through, Robin. I'm sure you have a thousand ideas, but if that's our goal, that's like just again, yeah, a nice way to work backwards and be like, here are some areas of of opportunity for for more education and discussion. See, I I I think that in and of itself that was provocative. I think the idea that we could have a conversation of what are some good monopolies or what should we nationalize. Even if it's just a thought experiment, right? You, you, I'm not sure that we could have that conversation in public, that we're having it now because there's a certain culture here that we all want to explore the ideas. But if you floated that on social media, right, right? And, and that's what I think is fascinating about the idea. Now, Sarah, you, you've been typing stuff in the chat, which has been very, uh, 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 which has been excellent. Do you want to take a moment in our last few minutes to, participate verbally and add your own perspective or two cents? Well, I think Bass's response is really good that, you know, if if we had good examples, we wouldn't have big tech. And so I thought that was really helpful. Um, I was just thinking, you know, um, I, I found the op-ed really provocative and really helpful, you know, to read through. And I think this discussion has been great. Um, but, you know, I was kind of hoping that at the end, we, you know, maybe there are some good things to think about. How can we leave on, you know, a positive note of, 
you know, if, if there aren't good examples out here, how can we be the good examples? And, you know, how do we move in that direction? So I don't know, maybe Robin, if you have some closing words on, you know, how we can look ahead, what we, where we go from here, basically, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, one thing that, um, uh, an idea that Vass gave me was, um, I'd like to do a, more like an informal reading group. So something I'd like to do is, uh, you know, get a group of people like this group together and uh, actually work through some of the regulatory documents of Canada's competition policy system. And I know like on surface, that sounds so dry. And part of my motivation of doing it is like actually motivating myself to do it because it is dry. But I think by like coming together and talking about it and really understanding uh, we are empowered to do something about it. I think like another positive action we can take. Well, I'll, I'll back up and say, I think that the positive step forward in all of this is to take some action, right? I, I don't see a lot of really good feel good stories when it comes to Canada competition policy. You know, maybe there are a couple, right? But um, I mean, I can't really think of any. So I think the feel good um, like inspiration that we can take away from this is that, you know, we've come to this conversation um, and have left it, I think with a bit more insight and perhaps a bit more motivation to talk about these things and bring people into the conversation and share these ideas in an accessible way that's not all technobabble. So um, that's, I think, you know, if, if you're interested in engaging on the issue, I think the, the best thing you can do is start talking about it. Well, and, and I think that's- Hopefully the, that felt good. <laughs> but <laughs> I think that's- hit the spot, Sarah. I, I think that's part of the magic of these chats that I, you know, before I first chatted with you, Robin, while I sort of had a sense of competition law, it was not something I would have talked about publicly. And yet now I do feel both a sense of empowerment that Nobody else knows what they're talking about. So therefore I'm perfectly <laughs> entitled to talk about competition law. And, and I think there's a certain accessibility to that, that will hopefully foster this, this broader policy conversation. Uh, Neil, David, Murley, the three of you guys are Brian, haven't really weighed in in the, in the conversation all. Now's your last chance. If there's anything pressing that you'd like to contribute or like to add. I think I'm the thing to recognize. Sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Brian. Oh, I think the thing to recognize is that it's just—it's always everything is constantly evolving. Like so, something that worked well as a competitive effort, you know, it, it'll reach a point, and then, you know, let's—I uh, don't know, like not like let's clamp down on it. Like I think, and and I think people need to be more comfortable with that. And <laughs> David? Oh, I was just hoping that Robin had found balm for her soul in her studies at, um, at Carleton and, and fellow travelers in the exploration of this conundrum that we're in there as well. Neil, you unmuted? Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, there's a dynamic, a continuum between uh, competition and cooperation. And uh, so I think what we're doing is we're moving back and forth along that continuum. And I'm thinking, for instance, about the United States and Canada, because in the United States, competition has become toxic and they can't even talk to each other. So what we need in a democracy is we need healthy competition where, for instance, Jesse and I might differ in a respectful way, but at some point we come to an agreement so that we can then cooperate to achieve a goal. And I think Saskatchewan has been a pretty good example of that in Canada. And it's, it's partly because they have been small and generally oppressed. And so they have figured out a lot of successful strategies to, uh, to succeed. And we have to thank uh, Saskatchewan for our medical system. So obviously it's a good thing. So we're all beneficiaries of cooperation. And I think we have to keep that in mind. And so these people that Jesse you're referencing that are just a, a, 
competition for competition's sake. I think that comes from the militaristic uh, Eurocentric point of view where you have to crush the enemy at all costs. And in the United States, it's become crush the enemy even at the cost of your own demise. And, and this is very sad to see, but because we can be a contrast to that, because for instance, our illness and death rates are significantly less per capita. I think we're demonstrating that competition can be achieved. And uh, the United States is learning a very, very hard lesson in that regard. So from the, the competition bureau point of view, I'm really saddened to think that a competition bureau's goal is not to protect the consumer. But if it isn't, then it's up to us. And so we have to individually uh, do what we can. And, uh, and we have to kind of be smart enough and do diligence enough to figure out how to take care of ourselves. And it, at some point we have to try to make the best possible decisions that we can. Right on. Uh, we, we are effectively out of time, although no one really has to go anywhere. I was gonna say any last words, but before I say last words, allow me to acknowledge Vass had her hand up before I said any last words. <laughs> oh, okay. Fair enough. Any last words, anyone who'd like to add uh, their perspective or thoughts before we wrap things up? I mean, I think this has been a fascinating conversation. I think uh, I think Vass uh, sort of said to Robin in the chat, you should do some type of pop-up class or course, which I would concur. I, I, I feel uh, this has been a tremendous value to me, uh, really empowering me to rethink of competition law as something that I should be more concerned about and that I should feel uh, entitled to weigh in about and engage people about. I hope all of you feel the same. 